Good morning from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm Dr. Michelle Owens, and I'm in studio today with my co-host, Dr. Allie Brown. And we are lucky to have Dr. Ed Manning, Professor of Neurology and Psychiatry at UMMC. And he is going to talk to us today about our minds, everything you ever wanted to know about your mind, your brain, um, having problems with memory. Uh, what about our aging brain? What kinds of things can we expect as time goes on with respect to cognition and our ability to recall things? Um, when should you have concerns about your ability to remember? And what kinds of opportunities do you have to learn more about what you can expect Stay tuned. We'll be right back to hear these questions and others answered on Southern Remedy for Women. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. going to take a second and let everybody uh, pay pay homage to uh, a fantastic voice and incredible uh, performer, Aretha Franklin, who, if you did not know, um, passed away on yesterday. And it's interesting, we were talking about this before the show started. Um, I was explaining to our producer that um, I felt very fortunate as a child who loved music um, to have been a kid who grew up who never knew a world without a Michael Jackson or without a Prince or without an Aretha Franklin. And so now for me, it's like the world's a little different, you know, knowing that she's no longer in it. But fortunately, hopefully like many of us, um, the gifts that we are able to share with others during the time that we're here hopefully have an opportunity to live on um, long after we're no longer here. And so I think that's just something that you know, was definitely a tremendous gift to the world, and I'm sure she'll definitely be missed. Um, thanks so much for listening, everybody. This is Southern Remedy for Women, and I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens. I am a board-certified obstetrician, gynecologist, and maternal fetal medicine specialist at UMMC. And I am here today with my co-host, Dr. Allie Brown, who is a surgical and anatomic pathologist at UMMC. And today we are doing something different. We are talking about the mind. This is kind of one of those topics that I've kind of uh, been very excited about us having the opportunity to discuss, but at the same time also a little nervous um, because I'm sure uh, everybody out in our listening audience at some point in time, have you ever had a problem remembering something or have you wondered sometimes, you know, we talk about, am I losing my mind? What exactly does it mean to lose one's mind? Um, And Sometimes as we get a little older, um, there are some things that I think are part of just the natural progression that go along with aging. And we talk about that from a physical standpoint, but also um, intellectually and cognitively, the things that are dealing with our brain and how it functions. And so today's guest is Dr. Ed Manning, who, by the way, is he is a mental rock star um, and we are all in awe. Uh, being in the studio with him today. Um, He is a professor of neurology and psychiatry at UMMC. Um, And again, we're going to be talking about all things mind-related. So if you have issues or concerns about memory, um, if we are talking about just how our minds evolve over the course of our lives, um, when things are working well and some of the issues or problems that people may encounter that are related to not just memory, but the way that our brains actually work and function, 
um, then he is the guy. And he is fortunately sitting here with us for the next hour, taking your calls. Um, just in case you don't have the number, it's one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or if you don't have access to a phone, you can always drop us an email to women at mpbonline.org. So good morning, Allie. Hey, Michelle. Good morning. Uh, and Dr. Manning, good morning. We're glad you're here. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, what we like to do is start off the show, like we kind of preface things about what we're going to talk about at least, but I'd like for you to kind of introduce yourselves to our listening audience and um, just tell us a little bit about yourselves. We like to know we like to know who's, who's sitting here giving us this good information, so tell us a little bit about you. Well, uh, my pleasure. I was born here in Jackson and then moved quickly to New Orleans where my father was in training, and I... Eventually, I have my degree in uh, psychology from Millsaps and then a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of Mississippi uh, with training at Houston, Texas, at what's now the Michael DeBakey VA. Uh, My interest is clinical psychology and clinical neuropsychology. Most of what I do uh, at the university now is see kids through adults with uh, learning disorders, with genetic disorders that have some sort of manifestation of cognitive difficulty, and people who suspect uh, ADHD symptoms more and more in their adult years. And then I see a lot of individuals with suspected what's called mild cognitive impairment, and then, of course, dementia. Okay. So um, those are some really, like you've thrown out some topics or some some terminologies that I'm sure are very um, interesting to the people who are listening, because those are things that we hear about quite frequently. I mean, it seems like, you know, as even for people who have children, um, this ADHD, the concept of, you know, I, I sometimes worry that I'm developing ADHD now. Um, and, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. Owens is going to sit in and also get diagnosed while we're on the air, guys. You're going to have a great experience today. <laughs> um, but you know what? Our phone lines are already um, open and lit up. So we are going to start first. We're going to go straight to the phone lines and hear from Ron, who's calling us on, from the road. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. What's your uh, question? Uh, this is a quote from an old rock and roll star. And I wish you could remember his name. But he goes, of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most. (laughs) (laughs) I'm betting that's country music. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks. Ron has a great sense of humor, and that was an excellent way to start off the show. That's funny about missing the mind. Um, But no, seriously, um, so uh, this is especially interesting to me because um, from time to time, I think um, my husband always reminds me of how much I'm forgetting. And um, I like to just blame it on, you know, our lives being busy and having a lot of stuff to do. And, you know, and here's a question. Can can stress or or like activity, like as far as how much you're doing or taking on a number of um, responsibilities, can that really impact our ability to to remember things? Sure. It affects your ability on the front end when you're learning things. And it affects your ability when you're actually trying to retrieve the information. So there's actually a, an interesting uh, relationship between stress or anxiety and memory. A little bit of stress is good. It may help with focus, and it may get your amygdala and some other subcortical structures involved so you lock into and retain information well. But too much anxiety in your brain just does not process well on the front end. So you don't learn things as well. And you've probably had the experience when you're in a test and you get so anxious that things that you know you knew before you can't recall, and then after the exam is over, the anxiety drops, and there it is. That's that's all anxiety getting in the way. That happened to me once in a biochemistry test in medical school. That's the only time it ever happened, and it was striking. Like mm-hmm. It was almost like I'd never 
seen it before in my life. It's it's a terrible feeling. That's really funny that you say that because um, we... So, I didn't do well in that test. <laughs> <laughs> so this was not... So it wasn't... So for medical school, I think the whole process of testing and knowing that you... Like, I, I was never a pre-test anxiety person, per se. Um, but... I think as I've gotten older, there have been some instances where you recognize what's at stake a little bit more. Mm. And so they can there can be a little bit more anxiety. And so you mentioned that in the biochemistry test. A similar thing happened to me in a um, in my oral exam for my for my oral boards. And so um, and, and just the way that I remembered somebody asking me a question in that moment. And I'd given them all of these great responses in my mind. They were great responses. Um, and then there was one thing that was very important, and I, I left it out. And, it, and I went back um, once I had finished the test and was talking, because that's what you do immediately, is you get on the phone and commiserate with either people who've done it or, you know, talking to your friends about what happened or what transpired. And I remember, like, as I'm telling them this, pro- like, what I, what I was thinking and all this Stuff that I and I went. Oh, I forgot to tell them, you know, this one thing that was s- essential and fundamental, and I could not believe. I'm like, how in the world could I have forgotten that? I mean, because it's one of those things that you would know automatically every single time. And of all of the little minute things that I was able to recall and bring up, that one major thing was the thing that escaped me. And um, so now, as a person who participates in the examination process you know I see that over and over with with other people who are coming through the process just like me and you realize that there has to be some element of or an influence of that anxiety or stress level that enables people who otherwise would be able to know and function very well to just in that moment forget it now how many of us have had those moments where you say oh if you hadn't asked me that right now I'd be able to tell you um, but at that moment, because it's brought up for some reason, it, you just can't manage to retrieve the information. Um, so once again, guys, um, our phone lines are all open. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So Dr. Manning, you talked about being um, a clinical psychologist. Tell me um, exactly what it is that you, what's your typical day like? What kind of, what kind of things do you do? Well, I'm in the clinic um, five days a week. A couple of those are half days, but I spend most of my time in the clinic. And so I'll see new patients who are referred for kids with learning problems, adults with coming in with complaint of memory difficulty. I actually see patients who are who with intractable epilepsy. We're getting them ready for their pre-surgical evaluations I do to help inform the other doctors about processes to get ready for surgery and so forth. And so I spend most of my time interviewing patients. I will do a certain level of my own objective measures of attention and memory and so forth. I'll decide about more in- intensive measures and I'll have a I'm f- very fortunate to have s- several psychometrists who are very well trained, very efficient and very smart and they uh, will take the my request, collect that data, get it back to me in a compiled fashion and I will interpret all that after clinic. Uh, and give it back to the doctors to inform them. Awesome. So what kinds of things are really important for um, in your mind that are essential just for for us to learn things? In, in order to be able to learn information or to accumulate information, um, what, what things are essential? Well, um, 
attention to the task. I mean, this is one of it's a very common thing for kids through adults. If you're not really attentive, if you're trying to multitask too much, you're probably not going to attend enough to the one thing to learn it. You also have to have some degree of interest. So even trying to get yourself motivated to study can be a challenge, but once you do that, it makes it easier to do that. Uh, and then how you study is also very important. There, there, I, there's, a, there's one handout that I give to a lot of people, kids through medical students, um, that is a, a rapid rehearsal process for re- studying and rehearsal that really works across all those different ages. And a, a portion of the people I give the handout to actually use it, and the ones who use it will come back and say, this was actually very nice, and I, I have the information down cold, and so come test time or class discussion time, it's just right there, I can pull it up. Uh, so okay, it, I need that handout, please. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, really, I'm not even joking. Please the email Ed me that Manning, handout. <laughs> the Ed Manning secret tool. For me and for my kids, please. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so we have a caller on the line really quickly. We'll go to John, who's calling from, it looks like, Farrah, Mississippi. Good morning, John. Good morning. And what's your question? Well, I have an 84-year-old friend who takes a statin drug, and she's been complaining about losing some of her memory and not being able to remember things, but like any 76-year-old, I go online and Google it if I can find an answer to the question. And I'm quite, I'm wondering if the doctor feels like there is a link between statin drugs and loss of memory or dementia, because I seem to find a lot of videos that suggest that it is. So statins have been associated with uh, a very mild degree of impairment with memory. So, yes, that is certainly possible. So the thing for her to do would be to have that discussion with her prescribing physician so they could look for all the other factors that could be contributing to memory. They could, there could There's an in-office assessment that most clinicians, physicians could do, even in primary care centers, and then they could always refer out to some a specialist to get more detailed uh, look at that. Well, I will do that. I'll tell her she needs to start by talking to a doctor. Good. Well, thanks so much for your call, John. Have a great weekend. Thank you. All right, guys, it's time for us to take our first break um, of the hour. Um, We will be right back. We're going to continue with our guest, Dr. Ed Manning, and we're talking about your mind. So get ready with your questions. Give us a call. We'll be right back after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And we're back at Southern Remedy for Women. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens, here with my co-host, Dr. Allie Brown. And today's topic is all things related to the mind, and we are sitting in with our guest, Dr. Ed Manning, who is the Professor of Neurology and Psychiatry um, at UMMC. And so um, we've been talking about um, 
how people learn and things like memory loss, ADHD. And we are here in the studio taking your calls and your questions. The number is one 672 7464 or 1-877-MPB-RING. If you don't have access to a phone, you can always drop us an email to women at mpbonline.org. And right now our phone lines are open and we are going to go to Catherine, um, who... I don't know where she's calling from, but I think we have Catherine who's on the line. Good morning, Catherine. How are you? I'm great. I was just calling to see if we could get a copy or how we might get a copy of Dr. Manning's handout. I got text messages, too, <laughs> asking me. Like we need that. <laughs> I'd be happy to provide that. And it's not my – I didn't originate this. It's a <laughs> – the, the, the acronym for it is SAFMEDS, S-A-F-M-E-D-S. You could actually Google that. It is, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's say aloud fast multiple times. So you basically you are taking flashcards, which you can do the old paper cards, or you can use a, a shareware program to create them virtually. And you read the item on front aloud, so your question, the word, whatever. And if you can't say the answer right away, you turn it over and read that aloud. And so you are going to shuffle through a deck of cards in a so you have a deck of 50 cards. You're going to shuffle through those in maybe two or three minutes. So this is a rapid process, not the old, let me memorize one card at a time before I move on. And then as soon as you finish, you shuffle them so they're not in the same order. You repeat the process and you shuffle again. You repeat this process multiple times until theoretically you get to 100% correct. And then you're done with your study for the day. But the next thing is you need to pick that up again the next day and then probably the next day. And so what you'll find is it takes less time day two and day three to get back to 100%. And then after a couple of days of doing this, you have made your brain almost resistant to losing that information. Uh, there are forgetting curves that psychologists study that tell them how quickly we lose information. And this sort of rapid repeat process um, actually helps to fight against that. So it's great for kids. It's great for kids and, and adults studying for tests and so forth. It's a great way to acquire new information. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Staff meds. I already pulled it up. I'm ready to go with staff meds. Like and I'm thinking, so we don't really talk a lot about this, but, you know, we talk about how people can live stream us um, through our um, through our website. We also have the MPB app. So perhaps maybe we might be able to provide some link or something on the website or whatever that might um, be able to help direct people who are interested. Um, and that way we can have people utilize our website and also get um, some good information from the people who are guests. So, um, But again, if you have the opportunity, we also have an MPB app and you can listen to us not only live when we're on, but also if you happen to be somewhere else and you have to get your dose of uh, Southern Remedy for Women, you can do that through the app, or you can also listen to our podcasted um, broadcasts um, in that same fashion. So, awesome. Well, Dr. Manning, we talked about, like, kind of situational memory loss and uh, high-stress type environments. When should someone be concerned that they're having issues with memory? We all forget things sometimes or misplace things. At what point is it time to go speak to your family physician or somebody about it? Well, it's a great question. So it, everybody notices that, but if it gets to the point where family members express concern, where you are not following through with some of your responsibilities that keep the family running, and if you work somewhere, if you get work feedback that your performance for some reason is slipping because you're not completing tasks or forgetting to do things that you intended to do and so forth, that's probably the time to pay attention to that. Yeah, so it's affecting your daily life, I exactly. mean, literally. So, so when it does have an impact, it's time to check it out. And 
is it to be expected at some point with age? What what is the what is the expected? Like I I notice. I mean, I'm in, only in my forties. I'd like to think I'm still pretty young, but I can tell the difference. You know, than when I was in my twenties, when I was in medical school learning. I feel that it is a bit harder for me to learn at this point. When what is how can you tell what's normal with that? What's part of normal aging? Well, so with normal aging, there have been some interesting studies where they take people of different decades, so 20s, 30s, and, and beyond, and match them for, so they're fairly equivalent in terms of socioeconomic status and so forth. And what you find is across cognitive measures, as we get older, and unfortunately this starts in your late 20s, early 30s, mm. and goes on from there, it, we don't process information as quickly. You don't, it takes longer to learn, and it takes longer to retrieve the information. Now, given enough time, somebody in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond can learn effectively, can retrieve information effectively. So it's not a problem. It's just normal aging. It's just what happens. Just So you lose, as I understand it, sometime in your late 20s or early 30s, you begin losing about 1% of brain mass per year, Ugh. just like you lose <laughs> bone density and muscle Ugh. density at some percentage, unless you okay. do something about it. So it's just part of the normal aging process. Well, what can I do about it? Oh, my gosh. You just Brain like, exercise. Yeah, so I kind of want to just kind of <laughs> say, okay, everybody, that's a wrap stuff. for today. Yeah. <laughs> we got to go and start exercising our brains. Well, you see because, all these uh, apps and things like that for, like for lu- this type luminosity, of thing. Luminosity, is that one of them? Yeah, there are a lot, yeah like luminosity. Is luminosity, one. yeah. So like according that. to the National Institute for Health, the, the they have four recommendations. The, the primary recommendation is physical exercise. Okay. They say that physical exercise, aerobic activity, in particular, is a great uh, preventive mechanism for reducing brain volume loss. Actually, there are studies showing that when they do MRIs and then put people on exercise programs, they get larger hippocampi over time. Ooh, Conversely, people wow. who don't your exercise... hips get smaller and your hippocampi get bigger. <laughs> We're a women's show. That was <laughs> such a corny doctor joke. <laughs> Thank you very much, doctor. It Dr. is what Brown. it is. That okay, so... <laughs> Exercise. That's so awesome. That exercise is really great. Yeah. I would have never thought for a million years I'm that, pumped. that exercise would have been on that list. That's very critical. The next thing they think is important is diet or reasonable dietary choices. So their current uh, preference is what they call a modified Greek diet or a Mediterranean mm-hmm. diet, which is more fresh fish and lean meat and less red meat more fresh fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables, and less overly processed food. Sugar, it turns out, very bad for your brain, uh, unfortunately. Uh, So those other foods are more important. So wait, so there is a such thing, and so there's a such thing as smart foods. Yeah. So there are things that preferentially, because, you know, we kind of touch on this, I think, with, um, at least on the prenatal part in my world, trying to, um, you know, whether it's the fatty you know, the acids, acids and, stuff, yeah. and, and, yeah, the omega-3s and all of those things. And, and with DHEA type um, uh, supp- DHA supplements and things like that for um, prenatals, because that forms kind of the building blocks for the fetal brain, et cetera, I, it would then, I guess, stand to reason that you could continue those things throughout your lifetime and in turn kind of have, quote, brain foods, I guess, so that there are things that would preferentially be, you know, more beneficial for your brain. Exactly right. That's awesome. So um, once again, guys, I just want to throw the numbers out. Our phone lines are open, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You look like you were going to say something. Well, I was just, I was still listening very intently on diet and exercise. And what about these luminosity type apps right, like so, Dr. Owens so talked about? Challenging your brain is step number three. So okay. that is very important. So doing anything that gets your brain out of your comfort zone mm-hmm. is important. So 
the problem is most of us master a skill, get into a line of work, and we get more and more efficient at doing that thing. While that's good and it's enjoyable and so forth, that probably is not doing your brain a lot of good. Mm-hmm. So it's those other things outside of there um, that are that are more important. And there is the suggestion. So maybe learning a foreign language later in life, learning to play a musical instrument, um, and as important, some of the literature is suggesting that not only taking on a challenge, but a challenge that is frustrating. Okay. So that is that gets your brain to kind of really having to work at stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you've never played uh, piano and you're trying to learn to read music for both hands, as a personal experience, I can tell you that is frustrating. <laughs> so I tell myself, well, this is at least good for my brain while I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. But that's very important. Now, uh, brain apps like Lumosity, you mentioned, uh, the literature says... Those are they're, they're good. Would you practice those? You do get better at those. It's not as clear how well that translates back to the real world. So getting better on the task on the computer might not help you to remember all the groceries you intend to get when you go to the grocery store. And there are some techniques to try to help transfer that training. Uh, there's one company. Let's see what it's called. Brain HQ is their is their app. It's Posit Science, um, where they have actually shown. In a recent study, I just read the blurb the other day, where they are suggesting maybe even some findings for some metabolic changes, positive, good things, in the brain with using their task. So I think I think there is promise for that sort of activity. And then finally, uh, but it doesn't have to be just online programs like that. Social interaction is considered a mm-hmm. cognitive challenge because if you think about what you're doing, you are, you're using a lot of your brain to attend and process language and process nonverbal cues and try to remember things to say that you think are entertaining and informative and so forth. So that's a good challenge for people. So uh, when they take uh, studies for folks who are in nursing homes and get them more involved, for example, in social interaction and do some repeat measures, they find actually some improvement with them over time. So that's very important. Yeah, I was going to say, unfortunately for a lot of people, I think, who show early signs of dementia, probably they become somewhat withdrawn. Exactly. So it's kind of like the opposite of what should happen. Absolutely. I have, you know, I have a, one other question. Um, and there may not be great data on this right now, but I would like at least your, um, your expert opinion. Um, so growing up, we knew everybody's phone number because oh. we had to call their we had to call them. That's right. And so, you know, if you ask me now, my grandmother, who has been deceased now for over 20 years, um, I could still tell you her phone number. Um, and that's because I, I spent my whole life dialing that number. And we had to remember everybody's phone number. Um, so what do you think is the influence of smartphones um, and this technology, how has that impacted? Are, are there hypotheses out there about the influence of those types of things on, A, how, how we learn, our ability to retain information, and are they, are they positive or negative impacts, or is it a little bit of both? Like, how is that impacting how people's brains are functioning? And I, I know there's even been some debate about manipulation of our brains in utilizing that to make people more dependent upon, you know, like phones and things of that nature. But I mean, can you kind of sum up the, the peripheral good, bad, brain, the good, bad, bad? and the ugly yeah. of the brain that we keep in our pockets as opposed to, you know, using just our, our plain brain organically? <laughs> well, so, brain. you know, and I go back further than you. So manual entry of phone numbers is what you had to do. So you had to remember mm-hmm. all those phone numbers and now you don't, you can, 
you can you can pull up a name or you can tell your phone or tell Alexa or Google to call somebody. So there really is nothing necessarily valuable about remembering phone numbers. So what Aww. I think it does is it, uh, except for the romantic part of remembering your grandmother's phone number and so forth, and uh, I, and I do know my mother's phone number, um, it, it frees you up to do other stuff. So the technology, if, if used correctly, it simply lets you apply your brain power to other more challenging tasks than simply remembering stuff like mm-hmm. that. So it's well, kind of like the difference between yeah, it's, yeah it's like so we so I was thinking we were getting lazy brain like we're cleaning but you're that's saying we're what making I'm room thinking. yeah mm-hmm. making room so it's like getting rid of the brain scut work so the stuff that your brain that we made our brains do that it really wasn't kind of the higher functioning kind of stuff that necessarily we might have needed to do but just stuff that we had to do had to do because the technology was such yes instead yeah. of just practicing learning a seven digit string of numbers now we can re- remember something else sure hopefully exactly. Hope. I kind of like that. So once yeah. again, guys, our phone number, one 672 7464 That's 1-877-MPB-RING. You can hear it's about time for us to take our next break of the hour. Our phone lines are wide open, and we'd love to take your calls and answer any questions that you have. We'll be right back after this short break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And we're back at Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. Our phone lines have blown up. Clearly, everybody is in tune with this mind topic for today. Um, and our guest, Dr. Ed Manning, who's professor of neurology and psychiatry at UMMC. Um, so we are going to go straight to the phone lines, and we will start with Mona, who's calling from Madison. Good morning, Mona. Good morning. How are y'all? We're doing great. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, I, my comment was... Um, I have a book called Life Reimagined, and I think I got it on Amazon. The girl who wrote it um, was a an MPB report. I mean, uh, not Mississippi Public, but National Public Radio reporter. And she, her mother was getting older. She was getting older, and she just took a sabbatical to write this book on how you prevent yourself from just getting old before you're old and a lot of um, research went into it she interviewed all these people and the things that she came up with a lot of what y'all have already said is in that book but one of the most interesting things she said um, the most important thing is to stay in relationships with people that as long as you're out in the community and engaging 
that that's one of the most important things you can do to keep your brain from just doing that downward spiral um, that people associate with getting older, just staying involved and engaged. Even more than exercise, that was important. So um, it's a great book for anybody to read, but it was very um, heartening for me to read and to realize that there were just things that I could, like I didn't have to go on a radical diet, I didn't have to eat tons more fish. I mean, all those are good, but this thing was just what you can do normally to just stay vibrant as you get older. Well, clearly, social interaction is very important. We are, we're, our brains are programmed for that. So not doing that is bad for you, and doing as much of that as you can is certainly positive. There, there, I, I'm going to forget the reference. I think it was a TED Talk I listened to a while back that where they took, uh, it was a control study, they took a group of people who were actually in assisted living, I think, and had various physical maladies and so forth, and they took them to a dorm at a university, and they reset the dorm prepared for them so it looked like it might have looked when they were in college so back to their to a younger age which meant television shows they would have watched music they would have listened to other activities they would have engaged in and they just let them hang out for about a week or so and at the end of that week all these people had increased their physical activity significantly their uh, mood states by measure had had improved drastically, and even on some brief cognitive measures, they had improved. So uh, there is really, there, there's a great deal of power in stuff like that. Awesome. Well, Mona, thanks so much for sharing. I think the, um, the book that she's referring to is Life Reimagined. It's called The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife, written by Barbara Bradley Haggerty. That's the the specific book that she was making reference to. All right. So um, we are going to continue along on our phone lines, and we're going to go to Nancy, who's calling us from Canton. Good morning, Nancy. Hi. Good morning. Um, I'd like to know what are the telltale signs of the onset of um, uh, dementia and uh, Alzheimer's, and would you distinguish uh, between the two? Um, so that, you know, those of us who are aging, our relatives could tell, or those of us who have parents and grandparents so that we wouldn't know at what point they need to see a neurologist or that. Certainly. So dementia is the more general term. Dementia simply means some significant drop or change in intellect, memory, etc. Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. And up until a few weeks ago, I would have told you, based on epidemiology, uh, Alzheimer's is about 37% of the dementias. I was reading something the other day that suggested that it was about 75% with overlap with some of the other conditions. So Alzheimer's is one of the primary conditions. Uh, Previously, it was only diagnosed officially on autopsy or after death, but now there are some uh, measures that neurologists and other physicians can use to be fairly certain about that in terms of what they say amyloid deposits and so forth. Uh, memory is the biggest issue. So difficulty learning new information and recalling that information over time is the biggest issue. Uh, for most people with dementia, with Alzheimer's in particular, especially early in the condition, their remote memory their ability to tell you about their childhood and college days and early career and so forth, reasonably intact. It's just new information that really is more challenging to them. Their brain is really losing that ability to to process and retain information like that. 
what are some of the uh, remedies then for um, for dementia and all time? Well, very important to go through before just thinking, well, I didn't remember everything at the grocery store, so therefore I have Alzheimer's. I think it starts with a discussion with your primary care doctor who will ask enough questions to think about other things. Some medicine interactions, for example, can cause some difficulty with memory. There could be something as simple as sleep deprivation or depression or something like that that can contribute to that. And they'll help you decide if a more thorough workup is necessary, in which case they may think about sending you to a neurologist or to a geriatric physician uh, who will do more uh, thorough exams in terms of looking for other things that might be factors contributing to that. So it might ultimately lead to a physician doing their differential diagnosis with uh, in-office measures. They may refer to somebody like me for more thorough cognitive tests, um, their lab work, their other imaging studies they can get. They may end up deciding that, in fact, it is dementia or Alzheimer's in particular, and then they can talk about treatments that might be appropriate for that. But it's important to go through that entire process so you just don't jump to that conclusion incorrectly. I think that's a really important point. I think people jump as you said, jump to the conclusion of Alzheimer's. It's something that we hear talked about a lot, but there are lots of other things that are potentially reversible that need to be ruled out before we label someone as having, you know, dementia. Absolutely. And there are lots of different uh, medical processes and other things specifically, because you think about it, if we're talking about aging populations, there are other things that are risk factors. So for example, cardiovascular disease and the implications of cardiovascular disease and maybe there are problems with blood vessels and blood supply to certain areas of the brain which could affect memory and could affect other things so there uh, sometimes it's just blood pressures being exceptionally high or other things that could contribute to that so it's really important that you make sure that sometimes when you have that symptom that you can actually try to identify or rule out some other things that could also contribute to what you're actually seeing. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be dementia or that it has to be Alzheimer's. It could be some other organic process. And that was going to be one of my questions that I was going to um, ask Dr. Manning to expound upon. But Nancy, you did a good job for setting us up for that. So thanks so much for your call. We're going to stay on the phone lines and go on to Mary, who's calling us. Um, From somewhere on the road. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm really enjoying your show. And I wanted to hear y'all talk a little bit about menopause and the brain, because there's a group of us who are of a certain age and who have gone through this. And honestly, you feel like you are losing your mind. You can't sleep well, uh, you know, and it just does feel like you're kind of in a fog sometimes and have trouble remembering things. So, I'd really like to hear y'all discuss that. Okay. Well, Mary, I tell you, just from the OBGYN standpoint, um, menopause brain is kind of like um, postpartum brain. It's all kind of the same. I think your hormones are going crazy. You're sleep deprived and you have a lot of, um, a lot of different stressors, I think also that can impact. And I think Dr. Manning um, alluded to that before, how some of those things may come together at that time to accentuate some of um, those findings. But um, Dr. Manning, I'll go ahead and let you talk about um, your, from the perspective of your clinical expertise, kind of any correlations between menopause or the change of life and changes on um, cognition and functioning. Well, there there are some 
that's not a common thing that I see in the clinic because usually those things have been ruled out before I see them. But yes, there are, for if there are significant hormone dysregulations, that certainly can affect memory function. So there's there may be some. I think there's something to it, Mary. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, good. I'm not crazy then. Yeah, no, but um, and you know, the, it's interesting how um, sometimes uh, whether it's if you are a, a candidate for hormone replacement therapy or things of that nature, um, sometimes being able to create a little bit more of a hormonal equilibrium within your body can actually kind of cause some of those symptoms to diminish, um, whether it's controlling hot flashes or all of those other things that can actually help you to get more sleep, to be able to concentrate. Because that's one of the things that many women who are experiencing menopause complain about is just difficulty being able to concentrate or focus. But there are so many other things that are happening simultaneously that it's very hard to tease out if it's directly related to just the hormone changes alone or it's just that the hormone changes are creating a certain circumstance or a certain set of circumstances that make it more difficult for them to optimally function mentally. Um, and there right. are also emotional pieces that go along with that, um, which may sometimes include a little bit of depression or emotional lability and some of those other things that may also have negative impacts on just your overall ability to, to remember or your overall cognition, concentration and things of that nature. Great. Thanks so much. And listen, great program. Awesome. Thanks so much for your support. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend. And we are on the phone with Marie, who's calling from Eupora. Good morning, Marie. Good morning. What's your question? Um, I wonder if there are particular supplements, natural supplements, which uh, would be helpful with memory and brain function. There, there are certainly are supplements that are available and marketed and so forth, and it's just not clear. I think the a number of years ago, the National Institute of Health actually was funding studies to look at ginkgo biloba, which was one very commonly used, and I think they did not even get through some of the early stages before they decided not to pursue that. Uh, ah. So I don't know that there's a great deal of support for that. Now, if you have um, if you have vitamin deficiencies of one sort or another, which your physician could identify with lab work, B12 deficiencies, vitamin D deficiencies, if they are significant, those definitely impact memory. So before before supplements, I would get a check with your physician to look for something more basic than like that. And I also think that there's probably at least a benefit for um, you know and. There are some vitamins, just regular multivitamins, to make sure that people are getting, you know, at least the recommended daily allowance of some of those essential building blocks just for regular metabolism um, that can also be beneficial outside of just, you know, the additional supplementation. Um, I think that that's always um, a a help to make sure at least that you're getting the minimum because everyone doesn't have a diet that provides them with all of the essential nutrients. So that's something else that you could also consider. I have one more question. Um, I have allergies to dust mites and I am getting shots for them. So hopefully this will let up in the future, but what kind of an effect do allergies have on the brain and more specifically what about histamines? Do they affect brain function? 
See, I knew somebody was going to ask a question that I had no idea how to answer, so thank you for that question. Uh, I do know, in general, uh, inflammatory processes are bad for the body, bad for the brain. I I just couldn't tell you specifically. uh, I can't give you a great answer about that, but I guarantee you when I leave here, when I get back to my office, I will look that up. Well, and some antihistamines can certainly depress your neurological function. Mm. If you're taking a lot of these sedating type antihistamines, that's something to look out for. Yeah, like the, you know, the people who notoriously take like the Benadryls and end up being, you know, sleepy or what have you. Yeah. The depression there. I'll uh, be out for a week if I take one of those. Well, I mean, and that's because it, so brain <laughs> histamine does at least, it has something to do with wakefulness, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's key for, for wakefulness. So at least we, we know that, um, which would explain why the antihistamines antihistamine would but the allergy shots should actually just put you in normal histamine function which normal is good usually yeah absolutely (laughs) um and thanks for your question that's a good one that is actually awesome so um now we're gonna move on to lisa who's calling us from clinton and lisa gets the award for being the most patient caller for today because i think she's been on hold the longest thank (laughs) you um you'll hear why i'm so patient when i tell my story (laughs) my um son who is now 14 um, speaking of jumping to conclusions, the school system where we were um, kept saying, uh, you know, through kindergarten and on, that he had ADHD. But um, I couldn't get a di- good diagnosis from from doctors. I didn't want to put him on medication until we got a good diagnosis. So um, it was difficult with our insurance company. Finally, we we lived in the D.C. area at the time. I enrolled him in, speaking of NIH, in an NIH medication study where he would be the kid that had never taken any um, uh, ADHD medication to be the control. Um, They did the intake on him, and they said he does not have ADHD. He is on the autism spectrum. So after crying for a long time, eventually we found a um, psychiatrist, adolescent psychiatrist, who could um, uh, diagnose him um, on, in terms of this being on the spectrum. He said, hey, just a year ago, this was a few years ago, we eliminated the um, Asperger's diagnosis, and uh, half of the people with Asperger's with repetitive symptoms and rocking motion and uh, obsessions, they're on the spectrum. Kids like your son are called um, social community, Social Pragmatic Communication Disorder. And just with that information, when we finally got to a school system who could work with us, they were able to turn my child around. He was out of special ed within 18 months. Now he's 14. Just a couple months ago at the end of school year, he took some state exams. He got perfect scores on English, the only perfect score in his school, and a perfect score on civics, like a statewide exam, and then high advanced passing on the other two. So this is a success story um, based on just stick-to-itiveness, patience, and uh, being the advocate for your child and learning as much as you can. Um, I don't know, doctor, you fill in the blank. Uh, How much more things do we have to do to make sure we get the right diagnosis and um, have a successful outcome? Well, I I think the key thing that you mentioned is the getting – to the right source to get a good workup, to get an accurate diagnosis, which then leads to intervention, which obviously had a very beneficial effect for your son. Uh, To put in a plug, there's a a center at the university, the K Center, 
which has excellent uh, psychologists and the developmental pediatricians who do a wonderful multidisciplinary job of trying to understand complex cases and behavioral problems and so forth in kids to arrive at diagnosis that leads to the appropriate kind of intervention. I think something like that is a very important resource. I think that, uh, Lisa, you make a really good point about advocacy on behalf of your child. Um, I think that, you know, it is incumbent upon all of us who have loved ones who are in the healthcare system to be relentless in our pursuit of accuracy when it comes to diagnosis and understanding, um, not just in our children, but especially in our children, um, because that that can make all the difference. And I'm so glad that you have a great success story to share. And hopefully some people who are listening will be more motivated to kind of, you know, dry their tears and pack up and, you know, seek another opinion if that's something that they really just don't believe for their child. Because what you have described is a very difficult situation that many parents are struggling with. Um, and again, jumping to conclusions, people really like to take the popular labels of the day and try to make everybody fit into those particular boxes. Um, so congratulations and kudos to you and best of luck to your son. So they can sit in a chair in a classroom. <laughs> and some, some humans can't do that. And uh, we're thrilled. Awesome. And thank you so much. Absolutely. Have a wonderful weekend. So we are now um, in about the last two minutes of our show. And Dr. Manning, we really appreciate everything that you've shared with us today. There are probably about 10 different things that we didn't get to talk about that we'll have to talk about the next time we have you on. But I wanted to give you a moment to at least talk about the things that you kind of, since you have this captured audience, be able to tell the listening audience the things that are really important from your standpoint on what they can do or things that they should be aware of to kind of optimize their brain health and to potentially uh, monitor their brain health? Well, to finish the NIH story, so exercise, diet, uh, cognitive challenges, and the fourth pillar of that is stress management, back to the idea that stress affects things. So chronic, unrelieved stress is bad for your brain, bad for your body. So doing things that take care of yourself uh, in a variety of ways, doing fun things outside of work and with your family and so forth, very important for brain health. Uh, but in terms of monitoring things, this is where uh, usually early on, so when people come in to see me with what's called mild cognitive impairment, and there's a continuum, normal aging, mild cognitive impairment, dementia, uh, people with mild cognitive impairment typically are keenly aware of their difficulty. It's only later with later stages of dementia people lose that ability to appreciate their difficulty. But you can certainly rely on yourself early on, but you can get feedback from family members to see if what you see as a concern is something that's worth checking out with some, with a professional. So um, is there, so we need to include this on our overall surveillance of preventive health. There's a, pre, there's a brain preventive health. Oh yes, clearly. Absolutely. And, and what, what would be the way that somebody might seek that kind of care? Well, other than talking to, well, you could talk to physicians, you could go to the NIH website and look for their information on aging, which I think is a great foundation for those skills. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for what has been a great informative show. Um, Southern Remedy was produced and engineered by Jay White, producer extraordinaire. Um, and our call screener is Michelle McAdoo with Dr. Allie Brown. And on behalf of Dr. Ed Manning, I'm Dr. Michelle Owens. Thanks for being with us. And join us next Friday at 11 for Southern Remedy for Women. NPR's Here and Now is next on MPB Think Radio.